this morning. We're continuing our time together. I think we're going to spend about six weeks. So last week we started out in this short letter that Paul writes to to Titus. And, uh, and this week we're going to consider the first words and the first instructions that he gives to him here in this letter. So this morning we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Actually, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, there are still a few on the back table back there. Uh, feel free to pick one of those up. Uh, I would encourage you to do that right now. If you don't have these words in front of you, these are the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, he inspired the Apostle Paul uh, 2,000 years ago to record these words. And they come to us preserved by God for our benefit this morning. Titus chapter 1, I'll begin in verse 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and, do, and, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And we don't know a whole lot about the churches in Crete, the churches to which Paul sends Titus to minister. Uh, Crete, if you're unfamiliar with your geography, if you look in the, well, in current, the current world, in Greece, which, okay, so I'm going to try and do it backwards so that uh, Greece is up here, and then there's the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's, uh, and then there's modern day Turkey up here, and then Crete is an island right in the middle, right in the middle between those two things. They kind of make a, a triangle right there in the Mediterranean Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. There are a handful of towns on the island, and apparently, from what we glean in the New Testament, Paul founded several churches in these towns on Crete. And in Acts 27, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records that, the, that, that he was on a journey with Rome with Paul and a group of individuals. And they passed by sort of the east side of Crete and spent some time in a town called Fair Havens, which sounds something more like out of Tolkien than it does out of the Bible, but that's fine. We're not sure when Paul founded these churches in Crete, but we can reasonably say that the churches were just a few years old. And I want to reflect on that just for a moment, because when we look at this letter that Paul writes to Titus, we see a man ministering to a group of churches in a small geographic area that are really, really young. 
There are no mature believers. None of these churches have a 50-year history. None of them have a 100-year history. They're all like a couple of years old. Most of these churches that, that Titus is ministering to, most of the churches that Titus is ministering to on Crete are probably younger than our church. We're going to celebrate seven years as a church in just a couple of weeks. And the reality is Titus is ministering to churches that are two, three, four probably not a whole lot older than that on this island. So all of the individuals who are part of these churches, when Paul writes to them, he writes this letter in the mid-60s, the people who made up these small churches had really just heard about Jesus for the first time like less than a thousand days ago. They've lived a small percentage of their life knowing about who Jesus is and really probably knowing anything about the Old Testament scriptures that came before. These were all Gentiles. They were all people who lived in the the Greek-speaking world, and they knew very little, if anything, about the background that Paul has. Remember that Titus is a Gentile himself. He's a Greek. He's not someone that shares a common heritage with the Apostle Paul, and yet Paul finds him and calls him a child in in a common faith. Crete, that little island, was notorious for its immorality, immortality, immorality in the ancient world, and not just among Christians. So Christians have a high standard of, of morality, but the reality is that Crete down there, even in the ancient world that did not share the same standard as the Judeo-Christian faith, was still wildly, wildly immoral. This was part of their M.O. Unchecked, unashamed immorality. Crete was hurtling down the the path to Sodom and Gomorrah status. It was not good. I won't say more. It was bad. And the churches that Titus went to to serve were trying to figure out how do we live? How do we live in the, in the reality that we, we just met Jesus? We just were introduced to him, and we live in this rampantly immoral culture. How do we live in light of those things, in light of our belief in Jesus, in the midst of a really messed up situation? This is Titus's charge. This is his task. It's a big hill to climb. Churches in the ancient world, again, didn't have many, if any, mature believers. When Titus arrived, everyone was in the same place. Everyone, again, had just, for the first time, met Jesus and been introduced to who he is, what he did, and what he calls his disciples to be and do. And so, because of this, you understand this, when when you're an immature believer, if you've been a believer, say, for four decades, you've you've been a Christian for 40 years, you understand that the things that you are susceptible to in year two are very different than the things that you're susceptible to now in year 40 because you've had 38 additional years of sanctification. God making you more like Jesus. You've had a lot more road behind you. And you understand when you look back, you think to yourself, wow, God has really done a work in my life. He's really changed me. There are nobody like that in this church. There's nobody like that in these churches that Titus is ministering to. And so they were, again, extremely susceptible 
to cultural pull and to false teaching. So next week, when we move on in the letter, we're going to see in verse 10, Paul writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party doesn't sound like much of a party. I want to attend. That's just a pastor joke. Sorry for that one. The circumcision party refers to a group of so-called believers who claim to have forgive, or claim that forgiveness of sins only comes to you if you repent, believe, and are circumcised. That's what the circumcision party refers to. They added to the gospel and they made a work of the law, circumcision, necessary for salvation. Paul is adamant that that is wrong. Time and time again, in this letter and in throughout the New Testament, there is nothing that you can add to salvation. It is a free gift of God given to those who repent and believe. Salvation is by grace through faith. So Paul fights this fight relentlessly all throughout the New Testament. These individuals who, uh, who required or said that circumcision was required for salvation were oftentimes in the New Testament referred to as Judaizers. Paul fights this fight often. And in Galatians 3.10, he gives us the summary of his argument against this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, including the work of circumcision. That might seem like a weird one to you, but this is a culturally pervasive idea. That on and on throughout the history of the church, men and women have been become susceptible to people who say, you need the gospel, you need Jesus who died for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to trust him for the forgiveness of those sins, you need to repent of your sin, and you need to perform X. You need to look this way, you need to talk this way, you need to live like this, you need to do this work of the law, you need to keep the Sabbath, you need to, and they make a work of the law a, a focal point or a important element of the gospel. This is not the case. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Good works matter, but they come second. They come as a result of those who have been saved by grace through faith, not in order to be saved. So, in Galatians 3.10, again, for all who rely on works of the law are under the curse. And then in Earlier in, in Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that he did not force Titus, who this letter is written to, to be circumcised for this very reason, in order that there would not be an argument made against, against him in this way. Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, ministered on Crete, combating the false teaching of those who insisted that you must be, or to be saved, you must be circumcised. So we'll look more closely. I'm getting ahead of myself because this is verse 10. We'll look more at this next week when we consider uh, the false teaching and the things, the type of cultural pulls that Titus is up against in ministering to these churches. But the point stands, not a lot of maturity. Not a lot of maturity in the churches to which Titus is called. He's starting at square one. He's starting at square one in these churches. Paul founded these churches, and now Titus is going to do work there. Most people had repented and believed very recently, and so discipleship for these people would be an uphill battle. 
And so what should Titus do? And why did Paul leave him there anyways? Why would Paul say, here, you, these, these are the churches that you need to minister to? Well, guess what? He answers the question that we just asked in verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. Good indication that he's going to tell us why he left Titus in Crete. Two ideas that Paul introduces here as a result of, of or the, that reasons why he left Titus in Crete. First, Paul leaves Titus in Crete to bring order. And secondly, Paul leaves Titus in Crete to appoint elders. Now, the first one is the top level, and the second one is uh, a subordinate idea. But we need to explore both of these things because he lists them in verse 5. Again, look at your Bible. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So let's take these in turn. The first, again, first thing he says, so that you might put what remained into order. Paul leaves Titus in Crete to bring order. Now, he doesn't go into great detail here exactly. We can glean throughout the rest of the letter some of the things and ideas that Paul wanted Titus to, to, uh, to bring to order but maybe not in an entirety. Now we have to assume again that Paul and Titus have had a long-standing relationship, that there's a lot of discipleship that has gone on between Paul and Titus. And so when he says something like this, as simple as to bring what remained into order, he knows that several things based on previous discussions are going to spring into Titus's, Titus's mind. He says Titus should put what remained into order. So there's some order to what's going on here. This implies for us that it matters what happens within the context of each individual local church. The job needs to be finished. Paul founded these churches. Titus is there to finish the work. And some things need to be brought to order. So I'm going to give you a couple of ideas that I think are present here in this text that Paul wants Titus to bring into order. And the first is this. First is congregational worship. We're going to see this throughout the letter, but but I'm going to give you a dose of it right out of the gate here. Probably the most explicit statement that Paul makes in the New Testament about congregational worship and the order that's supposed to be contained in there is found in 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells the Corinthians that all things should be done decently and in order. Now that statement is made within the made within the context of congregational worship it's made with congregational worship in mind when the people gather together to worship god they come together and need to do things orderly and in a decent way when the corinthians were gathering to worship everything was haphazard and if you've read the corinthian correspondence first and second corinthians you re- realize that the corinthians had a lot of things going on that they were doing a lot of things backwards. And so Paul comes at them and addresses a lot of different issues in their church, but then also here says that everything in the context of congregational worship should be done decently and in order. So in that passage, you can read it later, just go to the end of of, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and you'll find it. Paul gives a bunch of applications of how they should use their gifts in congregational worship 
and how and 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 everything that he says in that is governed by a singular principle and the principle is this he says let all things be done for building up so that means that congregational worship when the saints gather together for the worship of god it isn't a place to show off how gifted you are it isn't a place to tell everyone about how amazing your recent mission trip was it isn't to show everyone how much biblical knowledge you have. Rather, congregational worship is carefully planned and organized, sticking to the things that God has prescribed for us to do when we gather in order that the church might be built up, established and strengthened in faith and godly maturity. That was a mouthful. Let me say that again because I want you to walk away thinking about this more. Congregational worship is carefully planned and organized sticking to the things that God has prescribed to us to do when we gather in order that the church might be built up, established and strengthened in faith and godly maturity. God's character, Paul then argues in 1 Corinthians 14, God's character is the basis for orderly congregational worship. Paul writes, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. He roots the whole argument in God's character. Therefore, we go to God's word. Paul wants Titus to go to God's word to understand the details on what should be included and practiced within congregational worship. God commands us in the New Testament and all throughout Scripture to worship him with God's people in, within the local church weekly. He sets aside a day for us to do this, Sunday, the Lord's Day. And he tells us to worship him in his way, not in our way. The elements of congregational worship that are explicitly mentioned in Scripture are, and I'm going to give you one, one text, but there are many for each of these. The first is singing the truth of the Bible. We see that in Colossians 3.16 where Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Congregational worship includes prayer. Jesus, his own words, in Matthew 21, 13, Jesus said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now one interpretive important element of this, of this verse in particular, when Jesus says, my house, house shall be a house of prayer. He's not speaking about the building, the four walls. He's talking about the people of God gather. That is the house in which Jesus uh, claims. Jesus claims that house and he claims that it should be a house of prayer. And so in our congregational worship, we include prayer. Preaching the Bible is also prescribed. 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul writes, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul writes that to Timothy, who's a pastor in a church in Ephesus. And then, and I, there's lots of examples in the New Testament of commands to do these things, practicing of the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the things which are to be included in congregational worship according to the New Testament. So if you've ever been here at Buffalo City Church, if you've ever sat through congregational worship and thought to yourself, why do we do this thing? Or why do we not do that thing? This is why. 
Just because something isn't mentioned in Scripture doesn't mean that we should do it during congregational worship. Congregational worship, rather, is meant to be conducted decently and in order, worshiping God in His way because He is a God of peace and not a God of confusion. Think about it like this. Here's a metaphor for you. Think about it like this. Husbands, if it's your wife's birthday and she likes Italian food, and she likes going on walks at sunset, and she likes reading biographies. On her birthday, would you take her out to Mexican food, set up a Steven Seagal movie marathon, and buy her a book on bow hunting? No, you wouldn't do that. And if you do, do let's talk, because we, we might need to think a little bit more about marriage together. You guys, we want to honor our wives. We want to honor our spouse. We want to honor the ones that we love in the ways that, that, that they have communicated to be true about them. And this is what's great about the Bible. God doesn't make us guess. He doesn't make us guess who he is. He doesn't make us guess how we should worship him. He tells us directly in his word. We don't have to, we don't have to make it up. He tells us how to do it. And so when we gather together, we do this thing. Order, in, order matters in congregational worship. And I think when Paul says to Titus, put what remained into order, he is thinking about their worship. But it also, order is important when the church is determining what is important. Not just for the gathered worship time, but for all of life. What's important to the church? We might say that it is important to keep first things first. What should be the most important thing for the church? Again, 1 Corinthians gives us a little bit more insight, and I think that Paul and Titus had this conversation. Because we're right at the end of verse or uh, chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about what it means to have orderly worship and to worship decently and in order based on the character of God, then when we flip the page to chapter 15, he talks about what's of first importance. This is sometimes why our, our, the chapters in our Bibles sometimes create this, these unnecessary divisions for us. Because right away in chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, right after he's talking about congregational worship, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you a, a, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Paul is giving, speaking to the Corinthians, the truth of the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel being the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. The gospel should be of first importance to every local church. True in Corinth and true in Crete. True in both of these instances. Paul wants Titus to put into order right belief for the Cretans. Without the gospel first, the Cretans would become susceptible to the things that will be described in verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Verse 16. These things that the culture pulled them into, they would become more and more susceptible to. The false teaching that was on their doorstep, they would become more and more susceptible to. But the gospel must remain of first importance. 
So brothers and sisters of Buffalo City Church, the gospel for us must remain of first importance. Everything that we say and everything that we do should be run through the filter of the understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are continually rehearsing the truth of the gospel so that we might see everything in our life through the lens of the gospel. We are not people who come here and gather to worship a God who doesn't care what we do the other 167 hours a week. We come here understanding that God is a God who demands all of us, everything that we are, everything that we say, all of our time, all of our resources, everything that God has given and provided to us, God requires of us. The way that we do this is by filtering everything through the gospel. The truth that Jesus died in order that our sins would be forgiven. The truth that Jesus Christ came into the world while you were still a sinner and died as a substitute for you. That was the death that you should have died. But Jesus dies in your place in order that all who are joined to him by faith, if you repent of your sin and if you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, you will be joined to him by faith and inherit eternal life. If you confuse that, you confuse everything. Just like the Cretans were in jeopardy of confusing because the false teachers who said, you got to be circumcised as well. They were on their front door, they were at their door, and they were saying to them, you've got to do this thing too. And Paul says, if you go that direction, you lose everything. You lose it all. If you confuse this, you will confuse everything else. The gospel isn't just some proposition to be internalized mentally. The gospel is the linchpin of all of history. There is no event in human history, there is no molecule in all of creation that falls outside of the purview of the importance of the cross. We don't just believe the gospel is one option among many in a whole host of world religions. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to have eternal life. And all who reject Christ will be separated from God in hell for eternity. We believe these to be true. But God, the gospel is also the linchpin of all history because it is the very event where we see God carry out his plan for redemption that he planned before the world began. The redeeming of a people for his possession, which he promised to do in eternity past. All of this, everything that you see around us, from the pew in front of you, the pew you're sitting in, to the car that you're going to drive home, to the grass that you see growing, to the leaves that you see blowing through the air, to the clouds in the sky, to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to everything that you see around us serves as the backdrop for the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is what God set out to do in eternity past, and he has done it. And the linchpin of it is the gospel. The gospel is of first importance because it's the very foundation of Christianity and everything. But how will the churches in Crete, how will they? be sure that they keep the gospel first? How will they be sure that they keep the first things of first importance? How will they keep the gospel of primary importance? Because they're going to be tempted. In verse 10, we're going to see it again. They're going to be tempted to make something else of primary importance. That's the second idea that Paul 
introduces. The second idea that Paul introduces is that Titus should appoint elders in Crete. So our second idea, the order that we see Paul tell Titus to implement in the churches in Crete, one of the ways in which that comes about is by appointing elders in every town as Paul directs Titus. In order for there to be order, in order for there to be order, in the churches in Crete, men must be assigned to shepherd the flock. The shepherds, the elders, we said last week, if you were with us, that the pastor office, the elder office, those are one. The pastor and elder office here in the New Testament looks like shepherding a flock. Local churches, individuals, men. In verse 7, we see the word overseer. Men who oversee the flock. Men who shepherd the flock. Pastors and elders who do this within any given local church. We learn two things here about what Paul should look for in elders. This is vital. This is vital importance to Titus's task and to ours as New Testament Christians. Two things that Titus should look for in elders. The first is this, godly character and conduct. Godly character and conduct. The Cretans will be brought to order by observing and emulating godly character and conduct in elders. When Timothy writes to, or when Paul writes to Timothy, one of his other disciples, and who he writes the other two pastoral epistles to, in First and Second Timothy, when writing to Timothy, Paul writes in First Timothy four twelve, "Let no one despise you for your youth." but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This verse gets misused regularly to encourage young people to go do great things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But the context here is important for us because Paul is writing to a young man, Timothy, who, is, who has been discipled and who has been charged with pastoring a church, again, in Ephesus. The, Paul wants. Timothy to understand what he should do and why he's there, much like Titus. This verse, Paul writes to Timothy, and it's not designated to be a comfort to a 25-year-old after being passed over for a job promotion in favor of a 55-year-old who has been with the company for three decades. That's not the goal here of this verse. Rather, the goal here of this verse is that though pastor elders, the elders in any given local church would set an example in their life, in their conduct for, uh, for the men and women of the church. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Those are the things that Paul says that the example should, should be. Members of the local church are supposed to look to their elders to set an example for them on how to live. So, therefore, a man is disqualified for the office of elder if he does not live a godly life, if his life does not reflect godly character. Unfortunately, many times men are set forward as elders in modern churches who do not reflect godly character or who are not even, the question is even asked of them. 
They're put forward as elders for worldly reasons, socioeconomic status or business acumen or successes and achievements. Those things aren't disqualifiers. If you're successful in business, it doesn't mean you're disqualified for the office of elder. If you're, if you're, a, if you're well thought of in the community, that can also potentially be a, a qualifier. But those things do not represent the sole basis and do not represent anything or any, any one of the reasons or qualifiers that is given in the New Testament for an elder. Hebrews 13.7 reiterates what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Here it is. Consider the outcome of the way they live or of their way of life and imitate their faith. The implications of this for us as a church, and I say this with much trembling, is you should be able to look to me, to Mark, and to Blaze as an example of godly character and conduct. That's the design. That's the design that God has set forth here in his word. Are we as men perfect? No, but that's not the qualifier. The qualifier isn't perfection. Our hope, just like yours, is in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf not in our qualifications for the office of elder. But I will also not hesitate in saying that God has put us in a position here uh, for your benefit so that you might see what it looks like to live a, a, a life of godly character and conduct. And again, I say this with trembling and, and my words, may they not be polluted by any form of pride. Maybe I exposed to repent if that were the case. But I say it nonetheless, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the design. This is how God has set up and structured the New Testament church. I say it in full confidence. Christ intercedes for me. He intercedes for Mark. He intercedes for Blaze before the throne of grace. And so we won't be shy about why we exist for the local church and why we stand up here and, and preach the word to you week after week. So what does the godly character and conduct look like that Paul tells Titus to look for in a candidate for elder? Let's look at the direct qualifications very quickly here. The, the ones that accord with godliness and, and, and character and conduct. The three that I really want to focus on are in uh, verse 6. Look at your Bible. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, in verse 7 and 8, those qualifications given there, are you can take them at face value. God's steward must be above reproach. He says it a second time. Not, not arrogant, uh, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You can use your imagination and understand what Paul is talking about here. These are very simple. Take them at face value. But the ones in verse 6 might be a little bit more, uh, might require a little bit more explanation. When Paul says, well, he says it in both 6 and 7, above reproach, what is he saying? That's not a word we use regularly. We don't talk about reproach often. Some translators, your Bible might say blameless. Blameless. Essentially, that there is no open charge against this man. That no one is holding something against this person that can be evidenced. That there is no inconsistency or flaw that is on display that would bring about disapproval. Now, that's not very concrete, but
but it is given to us in order that we might examine ourselves as elders and that the congregation might examine those who are set before them as elders as well. Above reproach. The second one here is the husband of one wife. Now this one gets chased a lot. This qualification gets chased a lot. If you look at the original language, this literally translates both here and in 1 Timothy 3 as a one-woman man. A one-woman man. And I think here, Paul writes with polygamy in mind. Polygamy was a problem, especially especially for those in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek-speaking world, that had leadership positions. So polygamy wasn't something that was actually commonly practiced in the ancient world. But sometimes, for those in positions of authority, it would seem much more common. In fact, in some areas, it would have been a sign of social status that would have said you are qualified to be a leader in whatever sphere you file yourself in, if you have many wives. Paul says that's not the case. This qualification, when Paul writes uh, the husband of one wife, he is not saying an elder can't be single. He is not saying that an elder can't remarry after his wife has died. And while issues of divorce and remarriage need to be taken into consideration, especially when we look at the qualification of above reproach, um, that's not what this is primarily first and foremost aimed at. Paul wants the Cretans, Titus, and then to teach the Cretans to reimagine marriage and leadership qualifications as they relate. Not accumulating wives for personal gain so that you might be considered someone who's powerful, but being a man devoted to one woman. Now we get to the tough one. The tough one here in verse 6 is, and his children are believers and not open charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now this one gets, if we chase the other one quite a bit, this one gets openly speculated on a lot. But rather than chase it all over the place, I'm just going to state to you what I think the right interpretation of this is. The word believers here in verse 6, and his children are believers, can simply be translated faithful. And I think that the words debauchery and uh, insubordination should give us a clue. Paul is saying that the conduct of the children of the elders should be reflective of a home that is well managed by the elder, where the Bible is taught and where discipline is present. Let me say that again. Paul is saying the conduct of the children of the elder should be reflective of a home that is well managed by the elder, where the Bible is taught and where discipline is present. Paul is not saying that all of the children of the elder must be believers. Rather, that their lives reflect that they are actively being discipled in a godly home with Christ-like parents. So these three requirements some thought, uh, require some thought, but the remainder of these qualifications, again, can be taken at face value. Read them, think about them, understand them. But then we come to verse 9. Verse 9. The Cretans will be brought into order by observing and emulating godly character and conduct in the elders. That's what we just talked about in verses 6, 7, and 8. But in verse 9, Titus is to look for those who can teach sound doctrine. So the Cretans will be brought into order by receiving instruction in sound doctrine from 
the elders. So these false teachers, again, are going to threaten disorder among the church. But it's the call of the elder to receive or to give instruction so that the congregation might receive it in sound doctrine. The task of the shepherd is to fight off the wolves, to protect the sheep. Those who seek to snatch the sheep away from the church of Jesus Christ, the elder is called to jump in between the sheep and the wolf and fight off the wolf. The weapon given for fighting off the wolves is the word of God, and each elder is to wield it adeptly. Holding to the trustworthy word, this is what Paul writes, holding to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Instructing the sheep, rebuking the wolves. A work of the, uh, Paul went to war over this, protecting the sheep, rebuking the wolves over the issue of circumcision. A work of the law does not contribute to salvation. Adding to the gospel is losing the gospel entirely. So elders are going to war over false doctrine that threatens the sheep. And obviously, in order to fight off the wolves, the shepherd must be intimately uh, knowledgeable about his Bible. A shepherd who does not know his Bible well will find himself in a firefight armed only with something like a pool noodle. In that scenario, the wolf wins all the time, by the way. Paul leaves Titus in Crete for two things when it comes to appointing elders. Find men with godly conduct and character who, can hold, to the tr- who hold to the trustworthy word as taught in order that they might give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who may contradict it. So, order, and one of the ways that the order is brought is through appointing elders. So that brings us to the end of our time. Let's think about some implications, just three, as we wrap up. Implications from this text in particular. First is this. I want you to walk away with this, and I want you to think about this this week. The way that the local church is ordered matters. It matters to God. It matters to Paul. And that's why he left Titus, for the purpose of order. It matters when we gather together, we worship in an orderly manner. And it matters in what we keep first in our lives. We should keep the gospel first in our daily lives. Members of Buffalo City Church, this needs to matter to you. This needs to matter to you. That the local church, that God has commanded the local church to order worship in a particular way. Yes, the elders will lead out in this. This is one of our roles, is to order, uh, order Sunday morning congregational worship. But when you come to congregational worship on Sunday morning, you're not doing something passive. You're active. You're an active participant. Know what God has prescribed for congregational worship. We talked about these things a moment ago. And come every Sunday ready to worship God in his way. When, let me give you practical. When, you, when we sing, sing. When we sing, sing. It's commanded in the New Testament to sing. It's actually an imperative. It's actually a command to sing. It doesn't matter if you don't like the song. Open your mouth and sing. Don't rem- we do this all the time in modern evangelicalism. We reduce this to preference. I don't like the song. I don't like the band. It's too fast. It's too loud. 
Okay? The command in the New Testament is to sing. It doesn't imply musicality. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm a terrible singer, and these people are going to hear me. Who cares? I say, I, I, don't, I don't have a great voice. And I try to sing regularly to my children, something. But they, there's going to be a time, and it's coming very shortly, where, they're gonna, where their musicality is going to outpace mine. And they're going to say, Dad's a bad singer. Guess what? It's not about me. I'm going to keep singing because it's not about me. When we pray together, when we gather together and worship and pray together, pray. You may not be the one who's vocalizing the prayer, but be present in your mind. Affirm it internally. Don't just use it as a transition time to sip your coffee or to grab your Bible or to get to the next thing. When the preaching of the word is, is happening, listen. Be present. Take notes. Follow along with your Bible on your lap. Circle, underline, write down questions. Have the outline available to you. Begin thinking about how the sermon applies to your life so that you can have a profitable discussion in your community group or with men and women who you're engaged with at Buffalo City Church. If you need have questions that don't get answered in those venues, call me, email me. When the ordinances are practiced, be present. We usually celebrate the Lord's Supper the last Sunday of the month. Baptism are communicated before they happen. Be ready to rejoice in those pictures of the gospel. If you don't think it matters what we do, you'll just show up and drift in and out of participation based on the things that you like. But we're not here to worship God in our way. We're, worship to, we're here to worship Him in His. When we realize together that it matters to God what we do, and He's told us how to worship Him, then we will fully engage in all of the elements, realizing it's not about us and our preferences. Additionally, in the same vein, throughout the week, rehearse the gospel in your daily life. Like what the gospel is and what it means. You were born into sin, actively choosing sin. You were a slave to it, but God sent Jesus into the world to die in your place so that your sin might be forgiven. And all who repent of their sin and trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin are joined to Christ and will be with him forever. Rehearse that. But then ask yourself, How does the gospel impact my marriage or my parenting or my singleness or my relationships or my work or my recreation or my serving? How does the gospel impact everything I say and do? And when we as a church, each of us, devote ourselves first to the gospel, its truth and its meaning for our day-to-day life, we will remain properly ordered. We will keep first things first. That's the first implication. Uh, The way that the local church is ordered matters. The second is this. And for the sake of order at Buffalo City Church, elders have been given by Christ to shepherd the flock. Again, the elders are here for your benefit. Make use of us as examples, but also as those who you can speak to. Are you following the example that's being set? Are you submitting yourselves to the teaching on Sunday morning and in other venues? In our day, when someone doesn't like the way something happens at the church, they just stand up and they walk out the door and they never come back. People view the elders of a church like those who exist to do their will, more like representative government. They vote with their feet and they leave. And I'll tell you, that's wildly unhealthy for a church and for an individual. Regardless of if you agree or not with the direction we take as church, you're invited to talk with the elders regarding the direction. 
And what is the order and direction that elders are putting into place? It's sound doctrine. The elders are given to the church so that sound doctrine may be understood and lived according to. And the elders are given to the church so that you might live in such a way that reflects godly character and conduct. The elders, we are subordinate to God's word. We're not called called to find new and creative ways to do this thing or that thing. We're called to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Third and final implication very quickly. The current elders of Buffalo City Church are called to and required to devote themselves to identifying men who aspire to the office of elder and training them for that office. That's something that we as elders are called to do. This is what we strive to do. When you see us, a good portion of our time is devoted to the discipleship of young men in order that they might be raised up to serve the church as shepherds. John Baumgartner is an example of this, and that's why we've recommended him to the congregation to vote on October 16th. That's a culmination of a long process of identifying a man and training him for the office of elder. And the current elders in any given church, wherever you find yourself, if, you, if you're here long-term or if you find yourself in a different city, in a different venue, ask the elders, what are you doing to train men for the office of elder? Elders need to be actively discipling men in the congregation and actively looking for men who meet these qualifications, finding those who aspire to take on the role. For the sake of bringing things into order, leading the congregation into full submission to God's word. So, together as a church, we're called to gather together weekly in order, keeping first things first, and the elders are given to you by Jesus Christ for that purpose and for your benefit. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word, God, and we thank you for the way that it outlines for us, not just how we should live as an individual, as an individual, but how we should be organized together as a church. God, you have been so kind to us, not leaving us to guess how to worship you, not leaving us to figure out what's new or best or those sorts of things, but giving us clear instruction, giving us clear idea about how we should gather together, how we should organize our time, how we should live and step with who you are. God, would we this week understand more fully what it is to gather together as a people? God, and would you impress upon our hearts this week to keep the gospel first in everything that we say and do? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.